I love that. Every single time I come here and say good morning, there's this beautiful response. Now, it's good to be here again, and I'm actually quite excited to share with you um, from God's Word today, which we'll be looking at the book of Malachi. Now, I've come to love this book. Just in the preparation of what I'm going to speak about today and looking through it, I've gained a new appreciation for it, and it's really challenged me. So I'm hoping that you also come to love it. I'm hoping that somehow I can inspire you to go home and soak it all up and read it over and over and over again. But let's just pray to start and ask God to uh, speak to our hearts and to guide my speech. So Father, we just thank you for, first of all, for your word. What a privilege it is that we have your word. Uh, That in, in itself is amazing, that we should be bearers of the word of God, that we should be carriers of that. Uh, but I just ask that that word, uh, that your word would be spoken faithfully by me this morning, Lord, that um, I will not add to it what's not there, nor take away from what is there, Lord. Lord, may everything that's spoken today be for your glory. May it speak to our hearts, to our minds. May it bring change in our lives. I ask you, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Now, have you ever overheard a conversation between a couple, or maybe, maybe you were part of that couple, um, you and your partner, have you ever overheard a conversation that went something like this? Now, I'm going to try my best to do acting, but I'm no Matt, so please don't be too harsh. All right. You always lie to me. You've changed. When have I ever lied to you? Give me one occasion, just one. Come on. Well, fine. Well, you didn't lie, but you didn't tell me the whole truth either. If I didn't ask details about the story, I wouldn't get the whole truth. Yeah. Yeah, you always do that. You always ask me all these tricky questions as though I've done something wrong. How can we have a relationship if you don't trust me? See, I knew it, I knew it. You don't even love me. What do you mean? Of course I love you. Well, you don't show it, you'll never hear from me. (laughs) I've always been here for you. I've come home from work without pay. I've given up time with my friends to be here with you. I even gave up a dinner of roast lamb with Tom Cruise to be here with you. (laughs) Ever heard something like that? Well, things sound a little shaky and insecure in this relationship, don't they? You know, it's the kind of relationship where two people have been together for a fair while now, and they used to be the happiest couple. You know, they loved spending every minute with each other. They would constantly compliment each other. They'd encourage each other. They'd give gifts to each other. They'd go out of their way to give each other what they thought would benefit them. But now they seem to have hit a patch where they begin to feel as though the other person has purely selfish motivations. And they're questioning each other's love. It's a time where they start to feel a bit hurt, a bit disillusioned by their partner, and now they're both just going through the motions. Their heart's not really in it. They're starting to wonder if it's even worth being in the relationship at all. 
They're no longer getting all those beautiful, wonderful, amazing benefits that they once used to, and they don't feel that there's any point at all to all the hard work that they're putting in to do what duty demands. And that is exactly what the relationship has become. Duty. Unfulfilling duty. Now, in case you're wondering... I'm actually not going to be speaking about couple relationships today. But just as a side note, if you are going through something like this in your relationship, I want to sincerely encourage you to just seek out relationship counselling because there is very real hope that your relationship can bloom into something more beautiful than it's ever been before. So please consider that. But what's the purpose of me bringing this up. Why did I start my sermon this way? And there is actually a good reason. There is. The reason I've started this way is because as you read through Malachi, you'll note that there exists this dialogue, this dialogue between God and the mind of Israel. There's this back and forth, right? And as you read the conversation, it actually becomes obvious that this conversation takes place in the context of a relationship. Right? A marriage-like covenant. Okay? In fact, it's not unusual for God throughout the whole Old Testament to refer to Israel as his bride. Okay? And in Malachi, we actually see the dynamics of a relationship that's gone awry. Now, if I had time this morning, I would read you the whole book. I would, because I just think it's beautiful. I love it. And like I said, go home and read it. You'll do yourself a disservice if you don't. But I would, want to read you, I would want to read the whole book because then you can hear the accusations that are being made. You can hear the disappointment. You can hear the disillusionment in that relationship. And all through the book, you're hearing this kind of thing. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 2, there's this, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you, Israel, ask, how have you loved us? And in verse 6, God says, Where's the honour due me? Where's the respect due me? You show contempt for my name. Then Israel asks, how have we shown contempt for your name? In chapter 3 again, you have wearied the Lord. And once again, how have we wearied him? You know, you've spoken arrogantly against me. What have we said against you? And so on. It goes, there's this, there's this constant dialogue. And with each discourse, it then unpacks all the details. Now, to add a bit of context to what was actually happening during the time that this was written, Malachi was written in the period after the Jews returned from exile in Babylon. It would have been somewhere probably around 500 to 400 BC. Now, by this stage, Cyrus the Great, um, the Persian ruler, he had decreed that the temple in Jerusalem be rebuilt, and he actually funded everything. He funded the whole rebuilding. He funded the cost of the sacrifices, the cost of stuff, everything. It was an amazing miracle of God, actually. Um, and during that time, that's the time when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, which you'll find in uh, your Bibles, it was during that time that they would encourage the people of Israel to build the temple, and they would give them these glorious promises of, of God's blessings, the, the engrafting of other nations, of prosperity, of expansion, and of peace. 
However, now, this is roughly 50 to 100 years after the temple has been built. And these prophetic predictions haven't quite been fulfilled in the manner that the people expected them to be. In fact, since the reign of Xerxes, who was a couple of successes after Cyrus, um, he stopped the funding of the temple. So the upkeep of the temple, the cost of staffing, of sacrifices, now had to all be, be borne by Israel, and that added some financial strain on them. So things weren't exactly easy for Israel. And so they became disillusioned. They began to doubt God's goodness towards them, and they became spiritually apathetic. They began to offer blemished sacrifices and to cut back on their tithes, and they rationalized all their actions by the economic hardships they faced. They did for God what they needed to do, barely. But their heart wasn't in it. It was like that relationship which was just all duty. Therefore, unlike the message which was given when Israel first came out of Exodus from Egypt, um, which focused on how to worship God, in the years following Israel's second exodus, this out of Babylon, Malachi's message focuses not on how to worship God, but the attitude and the heart of the people who worship God. It's totally and completely saturated and wrapped up in that covenant relationship that exists between God and Israel. It's about writing their heart attitudes. It's about writing the relationship between God and his people, between God and his bride. And by doing so, beginning to experience all those amazing benefits and blessings that God gives, it's talking about how to prepare for an outpouring of blessing from God, blessings that he's promised to his faithful people. Now, the passage of Scripture I'm about to read begins with God saying, I haven't changed. Return to me, and I'll return to you. This speaks, then it speaks of the remarkable harvest that God will bless them with as a result. Now, given that Malachi addresses the heart attitudes of God's people, this morning I've specifically, I'm specifically going to focus on developing a harvest-ready attitude. So, if you want to read with me, we're going to read from Malachi chapter, chapter 3, verse 6 to 12, which, thank you guys. Okay, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and haven't kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. 
Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will, be, that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. I'm already getting excited. Sorry. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. So as I mentioned previously, I'm going to specifically focus on developing an attitude that's ready to receive the harvest that God gives. Now, there are three things in this passage that I want to point out. Um, three things that I want to point out when it comes to developing a harvest-ready attitude. The first is we need to develop a harvest-ready attitude about our resources, Okay, we need to consider all our resources with a harvest-ready attitude. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's have a look at verse 8, because in verse 8 it says, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. So here we see that instead of giving 10% of all the produce, now that was the tithe, the tenth percent, the tenth. Instead of giving 10% of all their produce, Israel was withholding some of their tithes and offerings that were supposed to be put aside for God. Now it's actually interesting that God brings up this point as an answer to the question that the people had asked. I mean, because he had said, I, the Lord, do not change. Return to me and I'll return to you. You see, the people then asked, how are we to return? So in verse 8, where it says, Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? That is the answer to their question, how are we to return? Now, how does that work? Because it doesn't seem like a logical answer. Well, I want to frame this once again in the context of a covenant relationship. God is saying, hey, I don't change. Hey, I'm still the same. But you guys, you guys, you always change and waver and turn away. You're hot, then you're cold. God is saying, I'm still the same God, your God, who protects you, who blesses you, who provides for you. Everything you have comes from me. I'm committed to you. I'm faithful. But you've, you've, You've turned away from me. So why then were the people withholding their tithes? I mean, perhaps they thought God had changed. Perhaps they thought he would no longer provide for them. Perhaps they've forgotten that everything that they received and owned, all the resources, that, all the resources they had, all belonged to God anyway. I mean, giving a tenth back to God was not only about supporting the work of God or supplying for those in need. It was ultimately an act which demonstrated the recognition that everything belongs to God. They weren't giving God anything that he didn't already have. He gave it to them to begin with. So this act of giving tithes and offerings willfully back to God, it demonstrates a dynamic of the relationship that existed. God, you've, you've given us everything. and We totally depend on you. Nothing we have is from ourselves. 
It's all from you. We offer, what we offer back is simply, simply a small part of what you've given us. We, we humbly give you this, and we understand, and we know, and we trust that you will continue to provide for our needs. Now, within this covenant relationship, giving tithes and offerings recognizes and reaffirms that God is their benefactor. He is their support. He is their provider. He is the sustainer of their life. So if they were experiencing a hard time economically, they ought to have given to God all the more. But they didn't because their relationship with God wasn't right. Their heart wasn't in the right place. They were second-guessing God's motives. Does God really care? Does God really love us? Instead, they should have continued to give in recognition that everything they already had belongs to God anyway. And that he was faithful to them the whole time. And he continues to give as they have need, even despite their unfaithfulness. I remember when I was a kid asking my mother, I, I, love the, I just remember this with fondness, Mother's Day was approaching, and so I wanted to get my mother a Mother's Day present. So I go up to my mum. Mum, can I have some money, please? <laughs> so mum gave me money. I went to the shop. I bought something for her, and then I bought something for myself. <laughs> a bit of stuff for myself. Something for mum, something for me. Something. <laughs> and then I gave her that present. Now, <laughs> I didn't give her anything. She bought her gift. She, everything I gave her, she had bought. She paid for In fact, I even kept a, a large part of it for myself. So I knew that everything I had at that moment, the money there, all belonged to mum anyhow. So I, di I didn't mind using all that money up because my life didn't depend on it. I knew that if tomorrow I needed something else, once again, I could go to mum, I could go to dad and say, can I have some money? <laughs> and... Um, it would come. You see, the nature of the relationship I had with my parents, I, I innately knew that. I didn't have to sort of test it out. I knew. That was mum. I am the child. You're obliged to. Kids, ask your parents for pocket money today. No, <laughs> no, no. It's just, it's just the way things work. Our parents give us what we need. And I had no question about that. Now, I know there are some cases where things aren't exactly perfect in this world, but generally, a good parent would give their child what they need. And, and, a, and a child in that healthy relationship doesn't even have to question whether it's going to come. Now, we have to recognise the same with God, that everything we have, it all belongs to him. All our resources belong to him. And when we give... We're simply giving back just a small part of everything that God's entrusted to us. Now, let me just clarify that when we consider our resources, we're not just talking about money. Yes, our resources consist of money, but also of our time, our skills, our giftings, our influence, and so on. Everything that God has given us. And God wants us to give of these things. If we're not giving... And I actually implicate myself here because I've been guilty of not giving. But if we're not giving, the scripture says 
we're robbing God. We're robbing God. Now, I understand that we may feel like we've worked really hard to acquire those resources or to develop them, or that we're currently experiencing economic hardships. But we have to remember that everything we have belongs to God. All our blessings come from God to begin with. In James 1, verse 17, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So we have to recognize that God has given us everything we have and will continue to give to us, to his children, because he doesn't change like shifting shadows. Our money, our time, the privileges we have in this country, our ability to be educated and to learn, the health we have to work, the unique skills that we've been given, and so on. All these things have been given by God and belong to God. So a harvest-ready attitude begins with the realisation that God isn't robbing us when he asks us to give, but rather we are robbing him when we refuse to give. Why? Because it all belongs to him anyhow. Therefore, to develop a harvest-ready attitude toward our resources, we need to acknowledge that everything that comes our way comes from God. He is the God of the harvest. It belongs to him. And this brings me to my second point. Now, my second point is that we need to develop a harvest-ready attitude about our responsibility. We need to develop a harvest-ready attitude about our responsibility. Now, what does this look like? Let's have a look at verse 10 of chapter 3 in Malachi, which says, Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Ah. Now, notice it says whole. And I don't mean the type of hole that you dig and then make vacant. This is the hole that talks about complete. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now, as mentioned earlier, at that time, the people of Israel had begun to cut back on their tithes. They were no longer bringing their whole tithe into the storehouse. And they considered, like we said, that they had good reason. And they began to rationalize by citing the economic hardships. Okay, for starters, as we said, Xerxes had stopped the funding of the temple upkeep, stopped the funding of the staff to maintain the temple, and, and stopped the funding of all the worship activities. But on top of that, they had to pay taxes to the Persian Empire and, and tribute. And to compound the problem even further, they began to experience crop failure, extended drought. It legitimately seems like a fair reason to hold back from giving, right? Well, maybe not. I mean, first of all, the tithe is always proportionate to the harvest. It was 10%. So, obviously, if they have a smaller harvest, the 10% tithe would also be smaller. So, although it might still have been difficult, the amount required would also have been less burdensome. But secondly, 
failure to give the whole tithe was also a failure in recognising the special covenant relationship that Israel had with God. As we mentioned that also previously, it was a failure to understand that God's intentions for them were good and that he would provide for their needs. That his intent was that they would thrive and prosper, that God loves them. They're giving of the whole tithe and especially in the time of economic hardship would have been an indication of their faith, of their trust, of their dependence on God's good nature and his promises. And also, they failed to obey the command of God. God had commanded them to tithe, and this tithe wasn't only used to support the temple staff and the priests and the Levites, but it was also used to look after the foreigner, it was used to look after the fatherless and the widows, or the poor. Deuteronomy 26.12, it says this, When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Now I want you to notice that this command issues out of the relationship that God, that God has with all people. The Bible says and teaches that God is love. And it is precisely because of his love for his creation that he gave the command to give to the poor, that he gave the command to help the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. God has a heart for the poor, and he wants his people to also have a heart for the poor. You see, God blesses his people so that they can be a blessing to others. Now, the people of Israel not only failed to recognise God's special relationship with them, but they, they failed also to recognise his love for all people. Therefore, when they withheld their tithes due to the poor and the fatherless and the widowed and the foreigner, they failed to love not only those people, but they also failed to love God, who is their maker, their creator. In Proverbs 14, 31, it says that those who oppress the poor insult their maker. But helping the poor honours him. So we, we see here that the people of Israel failed to use their God-given resources in a manner which honoured God. They didn't bring their whole tithe into the storehouse. They failed to fulfil their God-given responsibility. Now, I want you to just consider for a minute if you had two children, let's call them Charlie, or chair, maybe seven children now, let's call, let's call them Charlie and Ben, and they went to the same school. But Charlie is older and he's more able than Ben. Now imagine that you had given more than enough money to Charlie and told him to pay some outstanding school fees and then to buy lunch for the both of them. And then you told him, look, whatever money's left over, it's yours. Do with it whatever you want. Sounds okay so far, right? Now just imagine how you would feel if when they both came home later that afternoon, you discover that Charlie had lunch, but Ben didn't and was actually feeling a little faint and weak. And when you ask why, the response you get is, well, 
the school fees were a little higher than what we thought. And also, while I was at school, some bullies took some money from me. They stole some of my money. And so after I bought my lunch, which was my meat pie, my hot chips, the chocolate donut, magnum ice cream, apple pie, apple juice and mixed lollies, you simply didn't give me enough money to buy poor Ben any lunch. I only had just enough left to buy my Superman comic, so I really couldn't spare that. I mean, he told me he was hungry. Poor kid. And oh, oh, I told him not to worry. I told Ben, don't worry, because as soon as I've got a spare minute, I don't know when that will come, but as soon as I've got a spare minute, I'll email you and just let, let you know that Ben hasn't got any lunch. How would you feel if that actually happened? I don't know if that ever does happen, but how would you feel? I mean, yeah, there are a few unforeseen circumstances, but do you honestly think Charlie had been responsible with the money that you had given him, that you had entrusted to him? Of course not, of course not. He'd been completely selfish with it. He'd been completely selfish with it. He didn't use that money responsibly, and he had no regard for his younger brother, Ben. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is not that we need to legalistically and ritualistically give 10% of our money or of our resources. It's not about the percentage. And don't think I'm trying to say, okay, you have to all give 10%. If I'm going to say anything like that, I'd say you have to all give 90% because then, you know, we'd be able to do amazing things here. No, I'm not trying to say you need to give a certain percentage, right? That's not what I'm saying. It's not about the percentage. It's about willfully giving all that is asked to the measure that God impresses on our hearts and the measure of the needs that we see around us. It's about giving the whole tithe, giving wholeheartedly, as God says he loves, a cheerful giver. But isn't it true that all too often, and I once again implicate myself here, Isn't it true that all too often we get blinded by our own selfish wants? Not even needs, selfish wants. And in order to satisfy our own self-centered agenda, we neglect God's work and the ministry of the local church. Isn't it true that sometimes we turn a blind eye to the poor or to the fatherless, the orphans, or to the less fortunate in our communities, that we turn a blind eye to, to the foreign refugees, just so we can service the luxuries that we've become accustomed to. Now, honestly, I stand here in front of you all ashamed at myself because I'm completely guilty of doing exactly that. And just to give you an example, over the last few weeks, I've been considering which new phone plan to sign up to once my current plan expires. Now, realistically, I can keep the same phone I have and just go on a casual plan. I'll get great benefits, great data, unlimited calls. And, but instead, I'm considering going on a plan where I'll get the latest top-of-the-range phone, possibly not as much data, not as much. I'm considering that just because I want the latest top-of-the-range phone. And the plan will cost double, more than double what the casual plan will cost. In fact, the difference in the cost of these plans is more than enough to sponsor a child with Baptist World Aid. Now, when I'm confronted with that, how can I possibly neglect to feed a child 
because I want a Google Pixel 4X that can take photos of the stars. <gasps> wow. So I can see that hypocrisy in me. And I have to seriously ask myself if I'm using the resources that God has given me in a responsible manner, or am I being just like Charlie? You know, I can't help but think about that special relationship we have with God. You know, God calls us his children. And in 1 John 4.20, the Bible says that whoever claims they love God but doesn't love their brother or sister is a liar. Now, please, just follow me here. If we, if we in Christ, if we are God's children, then that makes us brothers and sisters. Just let that sit with you for a while. That makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we love God, it will be seen in the love that we have for each other. Now, in his letter, James, the half-brother of Jesus, gives very practical instructions about living out our Christianity. He challenges us not to just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. And listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 15 to 16. He says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? So our love needs to be seen by our actions, not just by our words. Now, I know for many of us, if a family member was to come and say they had nothing to eat, we would split our very last P to share it with them because we love them. They're family. And that relationship of love insists that we help We are obliged to help, not begrudgingly, but willingly, because this is my family. I can't let them perish. The relationship compels me to act. Now, if we truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ, wouldn't we do the same? And wouldn't we do it willfully, cheerfully, happy that we've been given the opportunity to help? Doesn't the relationship that we have together in Christ insist that we help? Doesn't the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father oblige us to willingly and freely give to His other children? And doesn't the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father give us the confidence to freely give because we are certain of His provision for our needs in the days to come? Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm I'm totally not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone. And I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't get the best phone or the best car or the best house or the best education that we can. What I'm merely trying to ask is how do the decisions we make regarding our resources affect our ability to give or to serve or to help? What I'm trying to suggest is that all too often we don't tend to think about how we can give of our resources in a manner which demonstrates love for God and love for our neighbour. In a manner that 
honours God in a manner which is a blessing to others, a manner which uses the resources God has given us responsibly. And I fear that sometimes we just go along with the flow of what everyone else is doing and get caught up in that. We lose sight. We lose sight of what's important. We lose sight of God's promises, of his provision, of his resources, of his unending bounty. So we really need to develop a harvest-ready attitude toward our resources and toward our responsibility. And we also need to develop a harvest-ready attitude about the results. Okay, we need to develop a harvest-ready attitude about the blessings that God will give. So what are the results? Let's read Malachi 3.10. It says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what does. Okay, this is simply remarkable. God is actually challenging his people to put his promise to the test. Now, take note that this challenge to test God once again, is made in the context of the covenant relationship with Israel. He is their God, and they are his people. As his people, they need to remain faithful to him. As their God, he will provide their every need and abundantly bless them with all manner of blessings. So much so that all the other nations will recognize this and call them blessed. All other nations will recognize God's blessing upon them. But seriously, what a promise. God is saying, oh, it's not there anymore, but God is saying they can trust him to fulfill his covenant commitments. He doesn't go back on his promises. He's made a commitment. Our God does not waver. God is saying, Give me that whole tithe. You know, that measly 10%, which you think is everything. Just give me that. Give me that measly 10%, and I'll give you in return more than you contain. More than you can contain. Let go of that measly 10%. Just let it go. I'm not going to sing. Now, a while ago, our son Josiah, when he was still a baby, he was chewing on this biscuit and uh, he was loving it. He absolutely loved it. And he chewed it down to the point where he's holding it with two hands and there was not enough biscuit left for him to actually get it. And he couldn't let it go because he'd drop it. But what was left was in his hand. And so he's trying to suck it out of his fingers and it's just a mess. And anyway, I saw this and I thought, oh, look at the poor kid. He's a hungry growing boy. Look, I'll, I'll give him another biscuit. So I've got another one and I'm trying to give him this biscuit. I'm saying, here, Josiah, here's another one. You know, he did not want to let go of that biscuit he had in his hand. And I'm trying to negotiate with him and convince him and say, look, this is the same biscuit. It's better look, it's bigger, it's more. He wouldn't let it go. He was so determined to hold on to that. And he started complaining and protesting. I got to the point where I was just exasperated. And I said to him, I just, I just said, Josiah, I can't give you this one unless you let go of the one that's in your hand. And I just stopped dead in my tracks because as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I realised 
that's exactly what God is saying to us. Let go. Let go. I've given you this. I've given you oh, There's so much more where it's come from. Let it go. Give me what you have in your hand so I can give you something so much better. As someone once said, the grasping hand isn't open to what he seeks to give. You know, the Bible speaks on several occasions about the blessing which follow those who give of their resources. Let's have a look at this verse from Proverbs 11.25. It says, A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Now let me, let me remind you, this is the divinely inspired word of God. We've got to choose today if we're going to believe it. It's the divinely inspired, authoritative word of God to us. And also, Jesus in Luke 6.38 says, he says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and flowing over, and running over will be poured into your lap. Have you ever tried to fill a jar and you sort of shove as much as you can in it? Then you shake it to just let everything settle. Then you put more into it and shake it some more. And until it just spills over everywhere. It's like, but these are amazing promises. Amazing promises. And sometimes we struggle to accept these words because we don't see how they play in our life. But they're God's promises and they don't fail. Now, as we freely give of our resources, God gives us all the more. You know, we can't outgive Him. And He doesn't give so we just barely have enough. If you notice in both Malachi and also in Jesus' words, there's this overflow. It's talking about so much that you can't contain it. Running over. God gives us more than we can contain. The good measure is just flowing out everywhere. It means that others will benefit from the blessings that God pours out onto us as it flows out of our lives. And now in Malachi, it speaks of other nations who recognize the blessing of God. In our circumstances, it's our families, it's our communities, our workplaces, and I believe our whole country. I sincerely believe that as we begin to act in a manner which takes God at his word, we will see the whole of Australia benefit from the outpouring of God's blessings. I honestly, sincerely believe that with all my heart. Now, whether these blessings be material, or spiritual, or perhaps even both, we don't really know. But we can be sure that as we give, God will give to us. I mean, he'll probably give us the very thing that we need most. So yes, we can expect a great harvest. We can expect God's blessings. He's promised us in his word. I would honestly love to see churches all around Australia just really start to take God at his word. And like myself included, once again, I'm not, I'm not innocent of this. Really start to take God at his word and 
And just the thought of what the exciting harvest could be just revs me up. Imagine that if we started to act as his children should act. Imagine the ripple effect and the impact it have through the whole country as they recognize these guys are blessed. Imagine the people who would turn back to him in multitudes. Imagine, just imagine in a country that's turning away from God. He's promised us this harvest. We've got to grab a hold of it. So the challenge for us today is are we going to develop a harvest-ready attitude towards our resources and towards our responsibility to give? What is it that God has been pressing on your heart, on our heart? Is it to give money? Is it your time? Is it your services? Is it your skill set? Is it your influence? Is it your position? What is it that God has been pressing on your heart to give to him? I mean, let's just consider how we can give more fully to God. And let's also expect to see the outpouring of his blessing. You know, ultimately, even if we get nothing else, God has already given us the greatest gift. Jesus gave us. Jesus gave us his all. Yeah, the Bible says that he gave himself as a ransom for all people. That's how great his love is for us. His love for you. It was his love for you which led him to give his life on the cross. And he did that while we're still his enemies. He did this to bring you back in right relationship with God. It's through his sacrifice that you can be reconciled with our Heavenly Father. And because of his resurrection on the third day that we can be assured of, of our resurrection in eternal life with him. What more can we give back to him than this? We can't possibly outgive him. We can't give him more than what he's given us. By far the greatest gift, the greatest blessing that anyone could ever receive is the gift of God, eternal glory with Jesus. But the question is, for all of us, really, Are we prepared to give him our whole heart? Are we prepared to truly make him king? Are we prepared to surrender our life to him and follow him? You know, we've all made these commitments before. But along the way, our selfishness creeps back in sometimes, doesn't it? You know, Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. So the question is, 
Are we prepared to give the very thing which we cannot keep in order to gain that which we can't lose? Are you prepared today, are we prepared today to give our life to Jesus in order to come alive and find new life in him? Because this is by far the greatest gift that God has given us. And it requires us to give to him.